0: and I'm one of the leaders here, and it's great to see you all, and I really wish Chris wouldn't hype me up like that because it just sets you up for disappointment later on. Usually when I get up here, I have a goal, and that's to come in and, and just do the message and then go, but sometimes I like to say stuff outside of the message too, and one of the things I want to say is that we just have a really great staff here at the church, and, and I'm really thankful that Christine has come along to be a part of the team. She's She's awesome. I've seen her at work with the kids and leading some teams, and it's just great what she does. So we're really blessed that she's here to be a part of our church and lead your children, our children, in the children's ministry. And isn't Chris just great with the announcements thing? I was really hoping for applause for him to boost his ego a little bit. There we go. There we go. He's just really great, and, and I'll, I'll say this, like, Ladies, when he said, get your husband out of the house so you can clean, he wasn't suggesting <laughs> that that's probably your role. What he's saying is he knows none of the husbands are cleaning. So somebody, somebody has to do it. That's how it works in the Oval household anyway, my wife tells me. But anyway, we're studying the book of Esther today. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to... Go ahead and turn to Esther chapter five. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. We're going to put the words up on the screen so you can follow along. But Esther's an interesting book to study. It's an interesting book to find its way in the Bible, actually, because God is never mentioned once in the entirety of the book. You would think that a, a book that found its way into a compilation of other books, which is what the Bible is. It's a compilation or an anthology of 66 books, primarily about how God has interacted with his people all throughout history. You would think that for a book to find its way into this anthology, it would need to have mentioned God in it, right? It just makes sense to follow the logic. There's something very illogical about the placement of Esther in the Bible because God has never mentioned, but it's only illogical when we look at it through the lens of the way we naturally think. The the way that we normally expect to see God show up. The way that we, we normally expect to see God visible and present. In other passages of the Bible, we see God actually speaking from heaven to people, and they hear a voice. In other books of the Bible, we see an angel appearing to people and speaking to them on God's behalf. We don't get any of that in the book of Esther. All we get is the story about a group of people that it is unmistakable that God has been working in the midst of what's going on. Now, we're in the fourth week of a fifth week series, and Week one, Pastor Jeff walked us through chapters one and two. Week two, Pastor Josh did chapter three. Last week, Pastor Jeff did chapter four. This week, I have chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, <laughs> and chapter eight, verses one and two. Now, um, they don't hate me, I promise, uh, when they scheduled me to, to do this passage. Here's what's happening is that the, the first part of the book, the first four chapters all take place. Over a 12 year period. From verse 1 through the last verse in chapter 4, 12 years have gone by. So the author is speeding us through time to give us the story. One could say, in a very real sense, that the last three weeks that we've studied Esther has all been to introduce this part of the story because the passage that we're studying today, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, verses 1 and 2 all take place over a two-day period. So the author really slows down and zooms in on the story. Now we begin to see that there was something at play here. The plot that the author has introduced to us is really beginning to unfold, and an incredible reversal is about to take place. What we've learned so far is that the book of Esther is written at a time where the primary Ruling nation in the earth is the Persian Empire. It is, in fact, one of the largest empires in all of antiquity. And the Persian king Xerxes is one of the most powerful men to have ever lived in all of world history. Now, within this empire, there are not just Persians who exist, but there are all kinds of cultures. all all kinds of ethnicities. It is a a multi-ethnic melting pot in the ancient world. But unlike our melting pot here in the United States that primarily came to be through immigration, their melting pot came to be through conquest. What they would do is they would conquer another land and they would take the people from that land and remove them and take them to another place. And then they would put some of their own people to live in the land that they just conquered. It was a very cruel, yet ingenious way to subjugate groups of people. And one of these subjugated groups of people that was scattered throughout the Persian empire was the Jews. Now we're introduced early on in the book of Esther to a Jewish girl named Hadassah, who we learn her Persian name is Esther. We're introduced to this girl who, through a series of events, just so happens to become the queen of the Persian Empire. And we're also introduced to another person, a man, Esther's uncle, a man named Mordecai. And this uncle Mordecai is a Jew who works in the palace of the king. He's a civil servant for the Persian Empire. We don't know exactly what he does. Does he work in the mailroom or does he have staff that he tells what to do. We don't we don't get an idea exactly of what Uncle Mordecai's job is, but we do get a picture of this that that he's involved in such a way that he's able to either overhear things, conversations that are taking place in the kingdom, or he's connected to other people who know things that are going on. And one day he catches wind of a plot between two of the king's servants to have the king assassinated. Now, here's an interesting opportunity for Uncle Mordecai within this plot because since his niece is the queen, he has an opportunity if this plot were to succeed to assassinate the king. If he inserts himself into it, he has a foot already into the throne room of the Persian empire. So this is an easy way for him to barge through the door and perhaps find himself elevated into levels of power. Instead of doing so, he chooses to show his integrity, and he alerts Queen Esther that there's a plot afoot against the king. And of course, because this is her husband, she alerts him, and the plot is foiled, and the men who were going to take the king's life, their lives are taken. We're also introduced to another character in the story, a man named Haman. Now, I want to take a step outside this real quick because uh, there's a Jewish festival called Purim that this book of the Bible, Esther, actually uh, gives the foundation for why they celebrate this festival called Purim, and we don't really have time this week to talk about what all of that is, but during their celebrations of Purim, they tell the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman all over again. And as they're telling the story, usually to the kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews, whenever they say the name Haman, everybody goes boo. Whenever they say the name Mordecai, everybody says, yay. In fact, they have noisemakers that they make to, to celebrate Mordecai and boo Haman. So let's practice that a little bit. We're introduced to a man with a lot of integrity named Uncle Mordecai. Yay! You guys are good. We're also introduced to an evil man named Haman. Boo, boo that's right. Let's keep that up as we go along. It helps me not to confuse the two, man. So we're introduced to this man, Haman, who... Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. We're introduced to this man, Haman. Okay, that's enough. We're introduced to Haman, who... I did it. I did it to myself who's a very powerful man in the empire. In fact, everywhere he goes, if he enters into a room, everyone stands to greet him. If he walks down the street and people see him, many of them will stop and bow to this evil Haman. He has a lot of power in the Persian empire. He's trusted by the king and and everywhere he goes, people know who he is because he carries the king's authority with him. And everyone pays him homage except for one man. Can you guess who that is? Uncle Mordecai yeah Now we don't know why Uncle Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. We don't know why he doesn't stand when. Haman enters the room. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We can speculate. Was Mordecai just a jerk and (laughs) treated everybody like that? Did he have something against Haman? Did he somehow know that he was an evil man? Did he catch wind at some point while he was working in the palace that Haman was a part of some shady dealings? We don't really know why he won't stand, but for some reason, he doesn't show Haman the respect that everyone else does. And whenever he passes by Mordecai, whenever Haman passes by Mordecai and Mordecai refuses to stand or bow, it just crushes Haman. He's devastated by it. It's a lot like the song we sang. Man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. This is, this is Haman's life. He was so beholden to the praise of other people, that that the lack of it from one person was enough to disturb him, was enough to set off his entire day. Now, this Haman, as he sees that Mordecai, he learns that he's a Jew, he decides that uh, he'll fix the problem of Mordecai not paying him homage, simply by having all of the Jews in the kingdom killed. What, a, what an easy, what, oh, oh, <laughs> What a leap to make. <laughs> uh, this one guy won't give me the honor I think I deserve. So I'll have all of his people executed. And so he chooses to set this plot afoot. And Haman catches wind of this plot as well. And so he goes to the queen we learned last week. And he says, listen, Queen Esther, your people are about to be executed. They've set a day months from now where everyone will rise up against our people. Now, now no one in the palace at this point knew that Haman and Esther are related. No one in the palace at this point knew that Esther was a Jew. And so for her to go forward to the king with this plot was to expose herself as one of them and perhaps put herself in danger. And she she pushes back against Haman and, and against Mordecai. And, and she, remember, I need the boos and the yays to remember. She pushes back against Mordecai because she says, if, if I go before the king, the king has a custom. If he hasn't called you into his throne, if he hasn't called you into his throne room and you appear, he can have you executed. Uh, there's danger in me losing my life if I If I do this, Mordecai, and Mordecai convinces her that she should go before the king and she finally relents to do it and she says these words, okay, that's fine. I'll go before the king and if I perish, I perish. I'll do it. If that's what it takes to do, I will go before the king. This brings us to Esther chapter five, verse one. So I'll go ahead and read if you have your Bible with you. You can read along. Chapter five, verse one, it says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. A lot of words there that's just trying to give us a picture that the king is sitting in the center of power. He's sitting in the most important room in the world right now and Esther is about to come in unannounced. Verse two, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now, uh, that was his way of showing that he accepts this visitor into the palace. And Esther, this is verse two, approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, just so we know, he's exaggerating here. <laughs> it's, it's a lot like this when you do somebody a favor and they say, thank you. And you say, anytime. <laughs> don't really mean anytime, right? You don't mean, yeah, 3am even. We don't really mean anytime. This is what's happening here with the king. When he says, I'll give you whatever you want, even to the half of my kingdom. And so verse four, Esther said, excuse me, we, this is a time where we have just one person talking at a time, okay? Thank you. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drink, drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, here it is. Here's her chance. She's gonna be able to say, I need you to rescue my people. She says, let the king and Haman, thank you, thank you. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She has her chance to say, I need you to rescue my people in this moment. But she doesn't. And I don't know why she doesn't. I don't know if maybe she got cold feet. Maybe she got scared. Maybe she got nervous. She certainly hasn't changed her mind. But we've all had those moments where we go to do something and we think now's the time. Now's the time. Now's the time. And we chicken out maybe. Maybe that's what's happening here. We don't know. It's fun to speculate. But verse nine, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Of course he did. He's just invited to be the third wheel to a date with the king and his wife. (laughs) Of course he's happy. And so when Haman, he went out that day, verse nine, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent him brought his friends and his wife Zeresh and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king he goes on to say all of the wonderful things about himself I have so many great things going for me. Everything is great. And, and verse 12, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she repaired. Tomorrow, I'm invited by her together with the king. I get to be the third wheel at their date. He's a weird guy, but he's excited about this. Verse, teen, verse 13 says, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Man's empty praise is never enough. He's got all of this going for him, and yet this one thing so robs him of his joy and his peace and his happiness that he can't even take it. Now, here's where we're about to see the entire story flip. Here's where we're about to see God reverse the entire situation, and this is what God does. This is how we know this is God at work, because what's about to happen are things that we see all throughout the Bible, things turning around. The Jews, we learn here, are speeding towards destruction. Chapters one through four, over 12 years, crammed into the short period of time. They're speeding towards their certain destruction, and they're rushing towards a place where they will be no more. Mordecai knew that day was coming months from now, but now his, his due date has gone from months away to now he expires before lunch tomorrow. He is rushing towards destruction, and it's going so fast, there's no way for it to stop. Sometimes, doesn't it feel like Our lives are just speeding on towards an end that we we do not think there's any way out, (laughs) that we do not think there's any kind of help for us. It feels like we're headlong on our way toward destruction, like we're rushing towards it. And I can tell you this, we see it in the Bible over and over again. We see it here in the book of Esther where God is completely absent, seemingly. What I've learned from my years of following Jesus and and studying the Bible is that God will take forever to do something real quick. He will take a long, long time to turn something around. Just before we thought it was gonna go really bad, Esther chapter six, verse one says this, and here's where it all begins to turn. On that night, the night that Mordecai has been marked for death, on that night, the king could not sleep. And we've all had those nights where we toss and turn. Maybe it's because we ate a pizza right before we went to bed. Maybe it's because we've got a lot on our mind. The most powerful man in the world probably has a lot on his mind. We don't know why he's tossing and turning, but for some reason, he can't sleep. We're about to find, I believe, that God kept him up. And I want to take a real quick aside and say this. Some of us, when when we can't sleep, we'll... Get on our phone and here's what I'll do. I'll open up Kindle and I'll read for a while and hope that it puts me to sleep. Or maybe we'll find YouTube videos that we'll just go on the rabbit trail and keep watching whatever comes next, no matter what it is. Maybe we go downstairs and make ourselves a midnight snack, right? We do whatever it takes to keep ourselves, to help ourselves go back to sleep. I have a friend who, if they wake up in the middle of the night they always say this of that moment, God woke me up last night. God woke me up last night. What if the next time we can't sleep and we're up on Kindle and we're watching YouTube videos of Dude Perfect guys throwing airplane, paper airplanes into basketball hoops, right? What, what if instead of doing that, what if we actually took that time and prayed? <laughs> Try to not let that put you to sleep. Try to not let that bring peace to your heart. What what if we did that? See, so many of us are looking for God to speak to us in in big ways. Like, I want God to show up with a miracle. I want him to prove himself to me. What if he's just keeping you up at night so you'll talk to him? What if he's showing up in that way? What What if it's that simple and hidden? It seems... Like God isn't present, but what if he's just doing that? All that is an aside and has nothing to do with Esther, but I couldn't help but think of that when I see that the king on the night when Mordecai was marked for execution the next day, the king could not sleep. And what does he do? He does what we do he starts to get on Google and search random things. He tells his servants, bring me a book and read to me. Put me to sleep. And so they bring him a book of memorable deeds of the king. And this is a book that's full of wonderful things that King Xerxes has done and wonderful things that have been done to King Xerxes. And on this night after Mordecai had been marked for death, on this night that the king just so happens to not be able to sleep, They bring him a book and begin to read to him a story about a man who overheard a plot one day to have the king assassinated. And when he heard that this plot had taken place, he alerted the queen, who then alerted the king, who saved the king's life, and these men were executed. And the king says, this is amazing. Have we done anything for this man? What's his name? And the servant reads on and says, it looks like his name is Mordecai. Yay! It just so happened that the king couldn't sleep on the night that Mordecai had been marked for death. And he hears a story about how Mordecai had saved his life. This is where we see God shows up. This is where we see God begins to turn around because now the king says, have we done anything for him? Have we rewarded his loyalty in any way? And they look further down and they're like, "Uh, we can't see any record of us having rewarded his loyalty. And the king says, well, we've got to reward him right now. What should we do? And just at that time, guess who comes in the door? Haman. Boo! Haman walks into the door and he's coming into the king's palace because he wants to ask the king for permission to have Mordecai hung on a stake outside the city, on a high place for all people to see. And before a word can leave his mouth, the king says, Haman, I am so glad you're here. You have such a great mind for thinking things through. Uh, What do you think I should do for the man I would love to show lots and lots of honor to? And Haman pauses and thinks to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? So he begins to think, what what do I want the king to do for me? Well, okay, King Xerxes, here's what you should do to the man you'd like to honor. <laughs> you should go get your best robe and you should put it on that man. The one that everybody knows is yours. The one that you wear to state dinners that people recognize. That's, oh yeah, that's the, that's the king's robe. You should put that robe on the man. You should get your best horse, the one that you ride through the city in and everybody looks up to you while you're on. You should get that horse and put this man on that horse. Then you should get one of your most important servants in all of your empire, one that everybody recognizes and one that everybody respects. And that servant should lead this man you want to honor around the city proclaiming, this is the man the king loves to show honor to. And the king says, Haman, you've outdone yourself again, my boy. Go fetch for me a man named Mordecai. And bring that robe, saddle up that horse, and Haman, who's more respected and recognized in the kingdom than you? You? Why don't you lead Mordecai around the city in my robe, on my horse, and say, this is the man the king loves to show honor to. (laughs) Well, he's a good servant of the king, so he does it. And he for sure is dejected and downcast as he's walking around saying, this is the man the the king loves to show honor to." You can just imagine his head is down and he's mumbling to it. And maybe Mordecai says, what's that, Haman? I don't think they can hear you over there. And Mordecai goes, Haman goes home because he needs to make sure that he remembers to take his Zoloft tonight. And he's very depressed and he's telling his wife how, how sad and upset he is about this situation that has occurred to him. And just at that time, there's a knock on the door. Servants from the palace reminding him that he's due at a banquet that the king, the queen is throwing in his honor. <laughs> and so now he's got a, a little bit of courage again to, to work his way back to that banquet. Because remember, now he's, you know, the third wheel at this date between... The Queen and the King, and he goes back to this banquet. before we look at what happens in the banquet, I, I want to bring up something that's in the Bible, because uh, what's about to happen? some people will call coincidence. Um, what happened with Mordecai getting his come up and Haman getting his come up, and some people would call karma. Um, the Bible refers to that sort of thing as divine justice, that, that, that God actually has laws in place in the world that when certain things happen, uh, it, it just happens to work this way. Proverbs 28:18 says this, "Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. We've seen. Mordecai walk in integrity. We've seen the evil Haman in all of his crooked ways, scheming and working to massacre an entire people group. And now he walks into the banquet that's been prepared by the queen, in which the queen finally tells the king what her wish and her request is, that there's been a plot formed by an evil man in the Persian empire. And this plot is to have all of her people massacred on one day. And the king says, who is the man who would try to kill all of my queen's people? And the queen says, well, I'm so glad you asked. It just so happens to be Haman himself. Well, the king is furious, he rises from the table and runs out into the garden and he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know what to say, and he 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 can't he can't even find he can't even find his his words to come and stop what is done and and then and then Haman falls down in front of Esther. He kneels down before her and starts to beg for his life. And just about that time, the king walks back into the room and finds Haman's head on Esther's lap, begging for his life. And he says, you can put your hands on the queen. And just at that time, gentlemen, you can imagine how furious you might feel. The king's bodyguards come in and whisk Haman away. And they take him out to the stake that he'd erected outside of the city to have Mordecai hanged upon. And they hang Haman on that very same stake that was planned for Mordecai. Mordecai's life is then spared, along with the life of all of the Jews whose enemy is now no longer present. We learned last week that when Queen Esther had been approached by Mordecai to go before the king and, and plead for the life of her people. We learned in that story that there's a picture between Queen Esther and Jesus, who, as Queen Esther is saying, this is not something I want to do. This is not, uh, this is not something that's going to be easy for me. This is not something that, uh, that I, I really feel like doing today, putting my life on the line like this. I've really got it going good here in the palace, Mordecai, is there any other way for this, for this to take place? Is there any other way for my people to be saved? And we see this picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was arrested where he, we learned that, that he was in great distress and he knelt and prayed and he asked God if there's any other way for me to save the world. Please do it. As Esther says, when she finally relents, I'll go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Jesus says to his father, nevertheless, it's not what I want, but what you want to be done. Now, she said yes, even though she didn't want to. And Jesus said yes, even though we learn he didn't want to. And it's different though, because Jesus Esther says yes, and she lives. Her life is spared. When she entered into the king's palace, he held out the scepter. She didn't die from saying yes. Jesus said yes, and he died. Today we see this picture of Uncle Mordecai and Jesus, who Mordecai's life is spared, and he lives. Jesus' life is taken, and he lives. <laughs> he lives. You wanna talk about God turning something around when it looked like there was no hope, God doing a reversal when no one else expected it, speeding on towards certain destruction that actually came and then God changing everything, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that very moment. Now, Mordecai's like Jesus in that way, but they're also different. Because as Haman is being carried away to this stake that was meant for Mordecai's death, Mordecai, I imagine, sees this happening and smiles and waves. <laughs> bet, 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 Haman, you got what? Got what's coming to you, boy. And he watches from a distance and maybe a smirk crosses his face. Maybe a a wave of relief comes upon him because he's not hanging up there now. His people are actually going to live. The difference between Mordecai and Jesus is that my sin... And my crooked ways, my rebellion against a holy God was dragging me to destruction, dragging me to an execution. And Jesus came along and saw that and said, no, 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 I'll go instead. Can you imagine Mordecai stepping in, stopping the guards and saying, no, don't carry Haman to that stake to be hanged on. Take me to it instead. We don't see that from Mordecai, we see it from Jesus, We love to look in the Bible and find all of the parallels between the the characters in the Bible and Jesus. We, We like to find the ways in which they're like him. But here's the thing. None of them are completely like him. Everybody comes up short compared to Jesus. He's always the one with more integrity. He's always the one who is more just. He's always the one who is so much more merciful than anyone else. Jesus goes to the cross for me, Mordecai let hangman hang, as I bet all of us would have done as well. God loves, though, to turn things around just when we don't expect it. The Jews were marked for death, and God rescued them from Haman's evil plot. Jesus is crucified, thrown in a tomb that is sealed with a stone, and four roman soldiers men who are trained to execute people in battle are placed outside of that tomb to guard his body and god raised him from the dead i was headed to hell in my sin and god saved me he loves to turn things around when we least expect it proverbs 28:18 whoever walks in integrity will be delivered but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall we're all all of us before a holy god in light of god's perfection in light of who he is in comparison with his righteousness we are all crooked in our ways but jesus the one who always walked in perfect integrity took the fall for me took the fall for you and now he gives to us the deliverance that he himself had earned The band's gonna return here in just a moment and we'll have uh, time again to, to spend time worshiping Jesus, thinking about the ways in which he rescues us from our sin, he rescues us from situations that seem hopeless, how he changes everything around. And during that time, let's just take those moments and focus on that fact that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can do anything. Number one. Number two, he's really the one who's in control. Wasn't the king of Persia the most powerful man in all the world? It's certainly not Joaovel who thinks he's the most powerful man in all of his world some days. It is the one true God. He is in control. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that you turn things around. You make things different. You, you prove that to us in the greatest reversal ever with the resurrection of your son, Jesus, from the dead. Lord, I thank you that in doing that, he lives forever now and can live in us. Lord, as we take some more time to, to worship you and turn our attention towards you, I pray that, that we'll leave here remembering that more than anything else, that Jesus is alive. And that's the proof that you're really the one who's in control, even when we don't see you, even when it's not apparent, even when you seem completely absent. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and lives in me is proof that you're with us. Lord, we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at Rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.